Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the closer nominations and increasing diversity amongst candidates running in federal elections. My first guest today is Duncan McDonnell. Duncan is a professor of politics at Griffith University, working, amongst other things, on Indigenous involvement in Australian political parties. Hello, Duncan. Good morning. And I'm also joined today by Maria Taflaga. Maria is a lecturer in politics at the Australian National University and the director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Hello, Maria. Hello, Ben. Hello, everyone. Nominations closed last Thursday for the federal election with the list of candidates announced on Friday. A record 1,203 people have nominated for the House of Representatives, while the Senate ballot papers have actually shrunk in most states, with New South Wales producing its smallest Senate ballot paper in the state in 24 years. The number of parties nominating candidates shrunk in both houses, which led to a reduction in Senate ballot paper sizes. But in the House, it didn't have that result because it was offset by a few larger minor parties running a lot more candidates, namely One Nation, the Liberal Democrats and the New Federation Party. A record number of women are running for the House of Representatives, with women making up over 38% of candidates, up from 32% in 2019. Maria, what do you think is driving the increasing proportion of women running? Largely speaking, I would say um, dissatisfaction. And I think this is actually kind of really interesting. It it sort of reflects a trend uh, that emerged in the sort of late 70s, early 80s uh, as a whole sort of group of women who had been uh, politicised by second wave feminism decided to get involved in politics. So the first thing they tended to do was run for local politics, displacing a sort of generation of sort of business liberal doctors, wives type uh, candidates. Um, And then, you know, more and more of them moved into mainstream politics, though, of course, they were a relatively small number. But they're the people that sort of gave us our first female premiers and and so on and so forth. And I think what you're sort of seeing today is that there's a whole cohort of women out there who kind of have, I guess, what is kind of required to be a candidate. So they've got... uh, money or at least some money um they've got the ability or the time to be able to run and they've got social capital uh so i don't think it's any accident that um the you know such a big uh, number of you know women are running in these sort of teal seats these former liberal party seats women who might have previously or in previous times been selected for the liberal party are now running as candidates themselves so that they have all of these three sort of uh, sort of key components uh, and the polity, you know, ne- hasn't necessarily delivered on on issues that uh, women say uh, matter to them around the care economy, uh, climate change. Women are more concerned about climate change than men typically um, and it, it seems these some of these integrity issues also. Not to mention just general kind of women's, uh, you know, I guess women's issues around um, safe spaces, uh, you know, and um, the stuff that's been going on in Parliament. We touched on a lot of that stuff last week on the episode about the voices independence in particular, but I wanted to mention that, you know, the number of candidates running is not necessarily reflective of who gets elected, right, because there are a lot of candidates who run and don't win. But it's interesting that for the bigger parties, they've kind of stabilised it. They're not, their numbers aren't really going up. The Greens are about 50-50. Labor usually runs more men than women, but not by much. And the coalition sort of stuck at about a third. But you've got like uh, the United Australia Party is running twice as many women as they ran last time. Even One Nation is running a third of their candidates are women. And then, of course, the big change is we went from 20-something percent of, of independents being women to about 45%. And quite frankly, this is anecdotal, but... Um, the independents who look serious and look credible and look like they have a chance of winning 
are much more likely to be women than men. That's just from me looking at every one of their websites. Yeah, so there does appear to be a broadening out of women running beyond just you know, the organised left of politics to um, a broader movement as well. With my colleague here at Griffith University, Fran Martinez-Icoma, uh, we published a piece actually last year in Parliamentary Affairs in which we look precisely at things like not just the numbers of men and women running for the various parties, but also where they actually stood. So the extent to which they stood in winnable or unwinnable seats uh, and, and also the success rates and what happens if actually you hold everything, if all things being equal, who do voters actually vote for more? And it was interesting because we found, you know, in, in an ideal situation, actually voters are more inclined to vote for women than men. But the problem is that the major parties in particular put a higher proportion of the women candidates in unsafe seats. Now, in part, that's to do, to do with the fact that a lot of incumbents are men and have been there for ages. But what I'd actually like to see, I mean, I noticed in your blog post, Ben, you know, that the numbers for Labour and Liberal, the proportions are, are pretty much the same as last time. But what I'd like to see, um, and it'd be nice to do this for Anna and myself, might do this when we have some time, is look at the extent to which they're in winnable or unwinnable seats, because that's obviously the issue in terms of representation. Indeed, uh, I did a blog post, this is probably two or three federal elections ago now, but first of all, it separated out incumbents and non-incumbents, so it isolated open seats, and then it looked at how winnable they were, and what it showed was Labor, understandably Labor had an issue with a lot of old blokes who'd been there forever, and they were slowly disappearing, but amongst the candidates who were new, they were pretty much 50-50 in both marginal and safe, but for the coalition, they were running lots of women for open marginals, but in open safe seats, they were mostly running blokes. Uh, I think this could have been 2019. I'll, I'll need to look it up and maybe recreate it on this current data, but it did suggest uh, the coalition, it wasn't that they thought that women weren't electable. They were very win- electable, but when they didn't have to worry about electability, they chose men. Well, they've actually been pretty specific about the fact that they think women run better in uh, community seats or, or what they call marginal um, seats. They, they, they've thought that for 25 years. Um, and I think what you kind of you, the point you make about labor um, is is kind of the right one, i.e., that labor has shifted its incentive structure to essentially, I guess, force an upset of that cart and uh, force a change. And the coalition hasn't they've they've gone for sort of you know these sort of softer um, kind of uh, approaches to I guess promote uh, cultural change but without any enforcement mechanism and so that's why we have seen that party sort of rise to about 20 percent and 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 sort of stabilize and and atrophy I think it's really interesting Ben what you said earlier about the fact that there are more Senate there are fewer Senate candidates now um, and more House of Representative ones and I mean um, I'd be interested to, to know what you think is driving that, but to, I guess to my mind it would be simply that people have come to understand the rule change in the Senate and that it's 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 not necessarily worth it. I mean, is that your reading on that? The immediate cause to my mind is there are less parties, um, like both houses have less parties running. And so in the Senate, I think there was a lot more parties that were already at their maximum number of candidates that were running everywhere. Um so in the House, you have less parties, but then One Nation went from running 60 candidates to 150, and the Lib Dems went from 10 to 100, and then there was another party that came out of nowhere and ran 60. So you, you've had a lot of parties disappear, but a few big parties grow. And I think 
a big part of that is that the laws became harder to register parties, and so a lot of parties got felled by that. But there has also been a bit of attrition as the rule changes have happened. You know, we have seen a few mergers. There's a party now called Fusion that's a merger of four small kind of vaguely progressive parties that I think recognised that it wasn't practical. There was no advantage now to having lots and lots of tiny parties on the ballot paper. And so I think we are seeing an effect there, but it was probably aided by the party becoming party, harder to register parties. But this gets into a whole theory I have about they've made it harder to register parties because once you have a party, it's really easy to nominate candidates in the election. But I think particularly for the House, it would the ballot papers would get smaller if instead of making it hard to register a party, like, for example, if we required that you needed someone local to, to nominate you or you needed 50 people to nominate you because an independent needs 100 locals to sign the ballot paper, um, if you're a political party, you need no one local to nominate someone for an electorate. If there was some requirement of a local signature, I don't know if Clive Palmer would be running in every single seat around the country, but nomination for increasing nomination fees is not an issue for him. You know, it's a small share of his campaign budget, but actually require him to have a hundred people in every electorate sign his form. Maybe that would have an effect. Well, it, it probably would to a degree. It would make things harder for everyone. And so part of me is like, I'd only want to do it if I thought it would actually be effective at, at achieving its goal because the side effects of it would be quite significant, you know, for the parties that do genuinely have a local presence. But maybe a hundred is too many. Maybe it should be 50 or something. But um, we've kind of given all these privileges to political parties. And then we said, oh, now we have to make it really hard to have a political party. Yeah. So I, I also wanted to ask Duncan, I haven't looked at the numbers of how many Indigenous candidates are actually running at the moment, but we have seen a general trend of more, certainly more in, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people elected to federal parliament. There's quite a few now. I saw the Greens talking about the fact that they're running 17 candidates who are Indigenous between the upper house and the lower house, including two sitting senators and two others who have some outside chance of getting elected. What are you seeing in the in the data that's the latest trends? Well, I think we can be pretty sure that in the next parliament, there's going to be more Indigenous representatives than in the current one, because you know Linda Burney for the ALP and Ken Wyatt, the two uh, Indigenous members in the House of Representatives are both running again, and, and they're both almost certainly going to be re-elected. Um, in addition, Labour has got five candidates that I've spotted so far um, running for the House of Representatives. Now, three of them are essentially in unwinnable seats. It's like 30-point gaps. But two of them have a very good chance of being elected. One is Gordon Reid, um, who's running in New South Wales seat of Robertson. And the other is uh, Marion Scrimgeour who's running in the Northern Territory seat of Lingiarian. Marion is, um, well, she was really a pioneer within Indigenous politics in this country. She was the first woman elected to a, a territory or a state parliament in 2001 when she was elected for the seat of Arafur in the Northern Territory Assembly. We will definitely see more, I think, Indigenous representatives of the major parties. Also in the Senate, you've got Jacinta Price, um, who's the number one for the CLP, um, which means she will get elected. So she'll be alongside uh, her Labour counterpart, Maldir McCarthy. So, yeah, the numbers will increase. I mean, we're, we're, still, we're still not in an ideal situation as regards Indigenous representation, especially when we start looking at you know, state parliaments in, in some parts of the country. But myself and Michelle Evans from University of Melbourne 
have a paper coming out now in Australian Journal of Political Science, probably next week or two, in which we look precisely at how trends in Indigenous candidatures have developed over the last 20 years. And it's, cer- it's certainly going up. And we'll see that, as to say, again, after this federal election. So by my count, I can count at least five Indigenous senators uh, in the next parliament, including Jacinta Price, so both NT senators, Pat Dodson, there's two Greens, uh, Lydia Thorpe and Dorinda Cox, and then you've got possibly as many as four in the House. So we're talking like nine or ten, which is about, you're getting four or five percent of the total parliamentary representation. So it's um starts to come close or possibly exceed the proportion of the population who identify who are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So um that that's I remember when I was first getting interested in politics and there might you just had Aiden Ridgeway and that was basically it. So that's quite a remarkable change. Why do you think that change has happened? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I think if you look at it historically, I think the election of Ken Wyatt actually was a big wake up call for the Labour Party. So for the Labour Party to see not only had the Liberals had the first Indigenous member of federal parliament with um, with Neville Bonner, uh, but they then had the first, you know, who's a senator, they then had the first member of the House of Representatives with Ken Wyatt. And it's after that that Gillard, for example, goes to Nova Paris and convinces her to stand. You then see others getting elected. You also see the Labour Party in some states introducing quotas. So, for example, here in Queensland, there's the, the idea that, you know, 5% of um, candidates in winnable seats should be should be Indigenous. And there's a, a lesser, more less stringent form of quota with New South Wales Labour and an even less stringent form with West Australian Labour. But that's very much on the table for Labour, that this is an additional quota alongside that, alongside the quotas that they have for women. That's actually interesting because if you look at the data right across state, territory and federal candidatures, Labour actually puts forward more Indigenous women than Indigenous men. And I think in part that's in order to tick two boxes for them. Whereas you see the Liberals very much the, the, the other way around. The Liberals put forward much more, generally they put forward less Indigenous people full stop, but they also put forward much more Indigenous men than Indigenous women. So, you know, you've got an effect from quotas there, certainly. And of course, it's also been, uh, I don't have the, uh, any concrete numbers in front of me yet, but it's been controversial this election uh, the push within the Labor Party, particularly in New South Wales, for more representation of people of colour, kind of separate from Indigenous representation. The seats of Fowler and Parramatta have had controversial pre-selections where there was some local grassroots push for candidates who were not white and then uh, some, you know, high pedigree, well-credentialed white candidate who who didn't live in the area was parachuted in. I'm, I'm in one of the seats in Parramatta and there was a lot of local candidates who are interested and it's very much a seat that has a lot of uh, ethnic diversity in it. There is a few seats where Labor is running new candidates who are winnable. I, I saw the candidate for Holt is a, a young woman of colour. So there is there is some efforts happening there, but that that's certainly been a tension point for Labor. Um, and in the seat of Fowler, one of those independents who is running, a bit different to a lot of the other independents running, but quite a well-credentialed indie is the deputy mayor of Fairfield, Dai Lee, who is a former liberal Vietnamese heritage, but is now part of the kind of dominant faction that runs the local council there and is uh, challenging Christina Keneally. And that could be an interesting one to watch as well. The number of candidates standing in the lower house will mean people's ballot papers are getting bigger and the informal vote will probably go up. And that that uh, is an issue that often impacts particular communities worse than others. But you know, seats that have 
nine, 10, 11 candidates. And there are quite a few electorates that have that. There are 28 seats in the federal election which have at least 10 candidates running in them. So I think we will see an increase in the informal vote, which is often impacts disproportionately in electorates where there's more of a non-English speaking background population, you know, Western Sydney seats, places like that. Yeah, I mean, is there any kind of discussion um, around um, this with the AEC? Are they concerned about this? I mean, generally they are. I haven't heard from them about it this election yet. They usually do a survey after each election on informal voting, but there hasn't been a survey that's come out for 2019. Surveys in the past have shown that usually about half the informal vote are people just casting a blank ballot, which is generally assumed to be deliberate, and the other half are numbering in accidents. So, you know, there's it's a difficult one to solve because the way you would properly solve it is you'd switch to optional preferential voting, but that would have much bigger impacts on how people vote. And I can't see particularly Labor going for that, but also the Nationals don't really like it very much either. It's a difficult one to solve because uh, you're kind of, the solutions I've seen are very much trying to have your cake and eat it too, you know, uh, trying to force people to mark preferences while not um, having the side effect of forcing them, which is that their vote doesn't count and their vote is marked informal. You know, there's some efforts to have savings provisions or things like that. Yeah, I'm not seeing much on it right now and it's it's a bit of a dilemma, but maybe there'll be more pressure for it if we get a big informal vote at this election. So the seat of the week this week we're talking about is Lingiari in the Northern Territory. Lingiari covers the vast majority of the Northern Territory, including Alice Springs, Catherine, the Outback and the Outer Fringe of Darwin. The Darwin urban area is mostly contained in Solomon, which is the only other seat in the Territory. Lingiari has been held since its creation in 2001 by Warren Snowden of the Labor Party. He'd previously been the sole Northern Territory representative in the House for all but one term since 1987. Snowden is retiring in 2022, with former Deputy Chief Minister Marion Scrimger defending the seat for Labor, as Duncan mentioned earlier. Duncan, uh, you you asked for this seat to be our seat of the week. Uh, what do you find so interesting about Lingiari? Well, I think, first of all, um, it's obviously a seat that both the majors care about. We can see from the fact simply that both the Prime Minister and Penny Wong were out and about in, in Alice Springs yesterday, um, searching for photo opportunities and trying to avoid being heckled, as far as I can say, um, not entirely successfully either. Um, but it's it's a seat that the coalition thinks that it, that it can possibly win. It's got a candidate, Damien Ryan, who's long-standing mayor of Alice Springs, who's CLP, and he's against Marion Scrimgeour. And... Snowden, one of the ways that Snowden held on to that seat so tightly was A, he was able to pick up conservative votes in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek that ordinarily would have gone to the CLP. And B, Snowden had an absolute machine in that they were able to really, really clean up in remote communities. One third of the voters in Lingiari are people who are going to be voting at remote polling booths. And Snowden took in the last election about 75% of those votes. Now, that requires huge work from the candidate. It requires a great machine on the ground. And often, you know, those polling booths might only be in a community for a couple of hours. So it's really up to you to make sure you get your vote out in that in that time. So Marion Scrimgeour, obviously, you know, experienced politician, but from the top end, you know, because she was previously representing the seat of Arafura when she used to be in the Territory Parliament, um, which is, you know, Tiwi and, and some areas of the mainland. Uh, so it's, it's going to be, I think it's, you know, there, there are some challenges for Scrimgeour there. From what I hear, Damien Ryan has been out on the ground since September. 
you know, is huge electorate and he's been getting out and about. So I think it's one that it could turn. I don't think it will, but but I think it's certainly one to watch. Um, the other thing to watch with Lingiari, of course, is, is the turnout. And that also links to what I was saying about remote polling and so on. I mean, Lingiari is, is the electorate in this country, which has the lowest turnout. It was uh, 73% in the last election. Um, you know, it was, uh, which was a slight decline on, on 2016. If you look at the votes in some of the, the territory seats in 2020 for the Northern Territory Parliament, you know, you the Barclays 63% turnout, um, which is contained within Lingiari. So, Turnout, it's one of those elections in which turnout really is, is another thing to watch, one of those few ones in Australia. Do they actually enforce it? In terms of fines and things I, like that? Yeah. Well, there's a number of problems there. And yes, they do try to. Um, but um, there's also the fact that a lot of people simply don't register because they don't want to get fines. 40% of the electorate in, um, in Lingiari is Indigenous, but less than 40% of the registered voters are Indigenous. I would be right to think that um, when you talk about turnout levels, that would have a differential impact on the result because the turnout is a much bigger issue. Like the the electorate has tremendous differences in the voting pattern between the urban bits. I mean, I'm saying Alice, Catherine, they're not that, you know, the towns compared to the remote booths, huge differences in that. And so if the turnout is more stable in those towns, which are kind of more 50-50 or even slightly leaning to the country liberals, then basically the election is decided by how much that turnout in the remote booths can kind of outweigh that part of the electorate. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, the big challenge for Marion Scrimgeour's team is can they replicate what Snowden was able to do in in really cleaning up in, in remote communities and having your people who are there on the ground um, and getting your voters, your supporters within the community to rally family members and friends and so on to get out and vote for you. Yeah, it's it's very hard to predict how, how that one will go because, you know, Snowden built that up over decades. Uh, is Snowden, you know, and Marion Scrimshaw, they allies, I suppose, or, you know, would he be able to sort of smooth the path for her? Yes, they are. Um, and he's certainly been helping her out, apparently. Um, I've heard stories that their poster is actually with both Snowden and Scrimgeour, which is which is really interesting. Um, and those kind of things happen in the territory. I mean, you've seen the case of Alison Anderson, who was you know, a very famous Indigenous politician who served for both Labour and the CLP from around sort of Alice Springs area. Um, she will still come back. She now lives somewhere up near Cairns, but she will still come back and campaign for people. Ties to, to pillars of Northern Territory politics are very important. And Anne Scrimgeour certainly has that. And she's also been, I mean, she hasn't been entirely out of politics since, since her time in the Territory Assembly ended, um, you know, over a decade ago. She's been uh, chairperson of the Northern Land Council in recent years. So, you know, she, she's a prominent figure. I've also noticed that historically there seems to have been a shift in the balance in the NT historically that when I was first starting to observe these patterns, Lingiari was a lot better for Labor than Solomon. You know, indeed Solomon has gone to the CLP a couple of times over the years, um, even though Labor now holds it. Uh, but the impression I'm getting from what I'm hearing on the ground is that Labor's more worried about Lingiari than they are about Solomon. Maybe that's partly about the loss of that personal vote. Uh, but also, you know, Traditionally, in territory elections, the seats that have decided territory elections had been the northern suburbs of Darwin. And then in 2012, when the CLP came back into power, they largely won it by sweeping through the outback. And so it does seem like there's a bit of a, the CLP is more outback based, more performs better amongst Indigenous voters 
or at least it has the potential to when they're on a high point amongst Indigenous voters than they once were. Yeah, and, and obviously 2012 was the high point of that when they won in places like Arnhem um, and uh, Arafura and, and so on. Um, the CLP certainly has a presence still in, in Alice Springs and in Tennant Creek, quite strong in Tennant Creek. And, and they won at the last territory elections, they won the seat at the Barclay by about seven or eight votes, as far as I recall, Steve Edgington, um, who, who's now the representative for there. So they have a presence there, but generally, you know, the CLP, we have to remember, are um, extremely disorganized and extremely broke and, and, and have been for, for, for quite a few years now. Um, so th- that is a problem for them. I mean, when I've been doing work on the ground in, in the Northern Territory, uh, that's the constant story I would hear from CLP people. They'd be saying, we've got no money. There's about three of us, you know, on a pickup truck and we go out, you know, 400 kilometers to a remote polling place and labor comes in with a plane you know, and, and a bunch of volunteers. So they're, they're totally outgunned in, in that sense. You know, it's really the willing few. And I thought it was interesting, you know, we, we touched on it earlier about political parties getting registered. I mean, the CLP risked being deregistered as a political party after they lost Sam McMahon um, as, as one of their representatives. And then that, that decision's obviously been postponed and provided they get Jacinta Price in now, everything will be fine and dandy for them. The CLP on the ground are in a lot of places very, very weak, if not entirely absent. So, Duncan, you're going to mostly be focusing on Indigenous representation and seats like Lingiari, but um, for both of you to answer, is there any particular part of the federal election you're going to be paying attention to over the next few weeks? Well, for me, because my, my, my main my main hat as a researcher is actually the radical right and populism, and I, I work on them in, in Europe and, and other places. So I'll certainly be paying attention to what, what Pauline Hansen does or, or doesn't do, I, I don't expect her to, to, to do particularly well. But, you know, given given global trends and so on, and given that we're sitting here when um, a radical right candidate has just taken over 40% in the French presidential second round, and we're considering that a great victory for uh, for democracy. Um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be keeping an eye on, on what um, the Australian Marine Le Pen is doing. Um, beyond that, um, I think the question of looking at the at how women do in this election is going to be very interesting. And, and that issue we touched earlier about the winnability of seats, um, especially given that both Labour and Liberals seem to be plateauing a little bit um, in terms of the proportions that they're putting forward. And yeah, obviously I'll be looking at what happens with, with Indigenous candidates. Yeah, well, I mean, in the case of Labour, they're sort of starting to hit their 50% target. I think this time it's about 46% that they're targeting. So we shouldn't actually expect too many more um, women um, out of um, labour in the next decade. Um, it really is kind of incumbent on the Conservatives to sort of start making up the numbers and, you know, perhaps some of these teal independents will help bring, I guess, some sort of centre-right women uh, to the Parliament. They'll do it for them if the Liberals won't do it on their own. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, um, you know, we might have another look at, um, you know, modern quotas or, or sensible quotas. I, I can't remember what factional boss Alex Hawke uh, precisely um, called them. Um, I, I guess for me I'm really interested in uh, the sort of ongoing uh, organisational um, strife within the New South Wales branch um, of the Liberal Party, um, it's I find this um, 
this is sort of like the, 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 I guess, perhaps a reckoning 30 years um, in the making and um, as party membership, uh, the average age uh, goes up and up and up. It is sort of interesting to kind of see how, you know, parties are sort of uh, changing, particularly um, the coalition sort of move into um, religious communities, which is of a long standing in New South Wales, less so perhaps in, say, Victoria, but that's what's sort of happening there. But, you know, with this sort of cataclysmic uh, fight um, between the, the factions in New South Wales, I'm actually just really interested to see what happens to the ground game. Um, in these seats, uh, there's been a lot of noise, a lot of sort of posturing and hot air about, you know, claims around whether or not um, certain candidates might help, uh, you know, boost the vote here or there. I'm pretty sceptical about a lot of these kind of claims around, um, you know, swapping the North Shore for the the outer suburbs, but I guess it remains to be um, seen. And if it is uh, bad for the coalition, I'm, I guess I'm interested to know whether or not the sort of organisational dimensions of uh, what's going on here and the hollowing out of those, you know, are considered important or or whether or not it's sort of swept under the rug. So that's what I'm, I guess I'll be paying attention to. I think that's going to be one of the recurring themes that everyone's going to be talking about over the next month uh, is uh, what that means to the Liberal Party. It's sort of the, the most, probably the most novel bit of this election. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Maria and Duncan, for joining me. Thanks, Maria. Yes, my pleasure. And thanks, Duncan. Thank you, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. Listener.